Our reading today is taken from Galatians 6, 1 through 10. It's on page 975 of your uh, Bible in your pew. Listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For what, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Let's pray together as we prepare to come before God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the assurance of pardon uh, that is ours in Jesus. We thank you that we can look to Jesus and know because of what he has done that it is well with our soul. And our prayer this morning is that you would come and meet with us, that you would meet us right where we are, that you would meet those of us who find ourselves anxious this morning, those who are struggling hard with sin, those who are, even at this very moment, uh, realizing the deep hypocrisy in our lives, um, how what we claim to be is not really what we are, um, that you would meet those of us who are doubting and skeptical, that you would meet those of us who are perhaps far too comfortable in this life. We have forgotten how desperate we are um, for you to work in our lives and how everything we have comes from your hand. Father, wherever we are this morning, we pray that you would meet us and that you would lift our heads, lift our eyes, lift our hearts to see the Lord Jesus so that we might be reminded this very morning that though we are far more sinful than we know, we are also, because of Jesus, far more loved and secure and accepted and approved of because of what Jesus has done for us. Help us to see him, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And children ages three to first grade, you are dismissed to Children's Church. If you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your class. Um, this Sunday and next, uh, we are going to be finishing up our series on the book of Galatians that we've been looking at really this whole year, um, beginning in January. So we've been in Galatians for a while, um, but now we're in chapter six. And the first 10 verses of chapter six that we read earlier, that Mark read for us earlier, um, they're a challenging bunch of verses. Um, you know, they, they, they read almost like 
Proverbs, in a sense. Uh, There's a lot coming at you. There's a lot that Paul says in these little short statements that he makes, but he doesn't give a whole lot of explanation. Um, And it seems to just jump very quickly from subject to subject as you read through these verses. But I really think these verses, they're held together and they're bound by a theme of gospel-driven and gospel-shaped relationships. Um, See, Paul, he's writing this letter to the Galatians, uh, and the Galatians were real people, uh, real people like you and me. And as he got ready to close his letter, he wanted his readers uh, to see how the gospel shapes and influences our relationships in every direction. Um, You know, it's been a while since I've been to the beach uh, several years, Um, but I've heard you talk and some of you are getting ready or maybe you've already gone to the beach this summer uh, thinking about a vacation to the beach. Um, And, you know, I'm not really a beach person, which is probably why we haven't been in several years. Um, But if you are, then I wish you well. Um, Have fun. Um, But I want you, let me reflect with you just for a moment on how The thing that I really, really dislike about the beach is actually the thing I really, really love about the gospel. You know, when you go to the beach, um, you have to be prepared that sand is going to get everywhere. Um, And it doesn't matter what you do. Um, you know, it's going to get on the floor and it's going to get stuck to the suntan lotion bottle and it's going to get in your hair and it's going to get in your bed, right? It, it's, it's so obnoxious and so irritating um, because you can shower all you want. You can shake off your towels all you want, but that sand is going to get in and on everything, right? And Paul was saying in these verses that we read earlier, that the gospel is like that. It gets in and on everything, but not in an irritating way, right? In a life-giving, hope-giving, healing kind of way. The gospel gets in and on everything. The gospel shapes and influences your relationships in every direction. Internal and external, it shapes our relationships. You know, see... I can do without the sand from the beach, right? But I can't do and you can't do without the gospel shaping all of our relationships. I mean, this is life relationships, right? And I want to pull out in in these verses four ways um, that Paul tells us the gospel shapes our relationships. There's actually more than that in this passage. I just only have time to deal with four of them this morning. But first... The gospel shapes the way we relate to ourselves. It gives us a new way to understand ourselves and and really to see and deal with our self-image. But second, the gospel, it shapes the way we relate to absolutely everyone. It affects and changes our interactions and our intentions with everyone we know. And then third, the gospel shapes the way we specifically relate to the suffering, all right? It gives us a special love, a concern, and compassion for those who suffer. And then fourth, the gospel, I want us to see, shapes the way we specifically relate to those who are caught in sin. It gives us a resource 
for a total commitment to both mercy and truth for the good of those caught in sin. So that's where we're headed this morning, relating to self, relating to everyone, relating to the suffering, and then finally relating to those caught in sin. Um, First, relating to self. Um, We're going to take these verses out of order, and I want to deal first with um, an apparent contradiction in verses 3 through 5. If you look at those verses, it looks like Paul says in verse 3, it looks like he was talking about an individual when you first look at them, as if to say, if a person thinks he's something, then he's nothing. But what he's really saying is, we are nothing, right? As in all of us, as in this is the proper way to see yourself. If we think we're something, when in reality we're not, Paul was saying, we're completely deceived. Okay, but then in the very next verse, we get the contradiction. We're nothing, but our works should be tested so that we can boast in ourselves, right? I mean, in other words, we need to see that we're really something, Paul is saying in that next verse. And so how can we be both nothing and something to boast in at the same time. It it seems like a contradiction, but it's the paradoxical gospel self-image that Paul is talking about here. Now, now if if, if possible, I really want you to make a deal with me at this moment, uh, that you will stick with me throughout this point because you need to hear the whole thing, okay? And you're not going to want to hear the first part, Um, but here it is. Do you, know, do you know what it means uh, to feel insecure um, and inconsequential and unworthy and to feel yourself to be maybe unlovable or like you don't matter or that you're insignificant? Of course you do. Because we all feel that way. I promise you're not alone in that. It's all of humanity. And listen, we spend, because of that, we spend a lot of energy. We spend a lot of time. We spend a lot of money trying to get rid of that feeling. But here's the thing. I think Paul would say, and the Bible would say, not so fast. You're actually onto something there. Right? Pay attention to those feelings because you really are nothing. See, <laughs> this is why I'm saying you need to pay attention to all the way through. Because of lines like that, right? I mean, the Bible says we're all grasping for glory. But, we've com- but it tells us we've completely missed the mark. That we've fallen short of glory. That we're empty of glory. And... You know what glory is in the through the lens of the Bible? It is a heaviness or a weightiness of importance. It's to matter supremely. It's to possess real beauty and worth. See, deep down, we know we were meant for glory. We, we weren't meant to feel so unimportant and empty and insignificant and unworthy in our lives. So 
here's where we are. We're empty of glory. And so we find ourselves grasping for it anywhere, in any way we can. We're desperately always trying to build a case for our significance and our value and our lovability. You know, my spouse, or maybe the hope of a spouse one day, that'll prove to me that I'm lovable. You know, or my social status is evidence that I have worth, or my career shows me my importance, or my being theologically or morally right proves my value. Listen, the therapeutic mindset um, has seeped into every part of our culture. And it says that the way we get beyond these feelings and thoughts and build a healthy self-image is that we learn how to tell ourselves that we're really enough, right? Um, that you're beautiful, that you're worthy, um, uh, that you need to look inside and find your true value, right? Um, but what if you're really not enough? You know, look inside or at your career or at your family or at your money or at your whatever, and all you'll be doing is riding the swells on your best day and falling into despair on your worst days. It's an insecure, nauseating, tossing and turning, up and down slavery in our lives, if that's how we're looking for our self-image. And I wish I had time to do so much more of this, but Dan Allender once wrote um, that we prefer the illusion, or we might say we prefer the deception because we have a deep need to be buffered from reality. And the gospel forces us to deal with reality, to see that we really are empty of glory, that we're nothing. I mean, the gospel says, as someone once put it, cheer up, you're far worse than you know. Um, but listen, the road to the gospel, uh, self-shaped self-image, it really begins with embracing your broken reality. But here's the paradox of it all. It's when you admit that you're nothing and you run to Jesus that you really and truly become something. I mean, this is a transformed way of seeing yourself. It's when you recognize that you're completely bankrupt, that you're completely empty of glory, and you come to Jesus that you get filled with glory. That's when you find out your importance. That's when you find out your worth, your true significance, your value, and your beauty. That's when you find out that you really are something. I mean, ask yourself how important you are to the creator of the universe. How significant are you in the eyes of the king of kings? How valued are you, right, by the one enthroned in heaven? How loved are you? Do you want to know? The Bible says, look no further than the cross, because there you will see God himself with his arms outstretched, bleeding and dying for you. He emptied himself of glory, right? And he became nothing so that you could be something and so that you could be filled with glory. Listen, I'm going to skip my illustration here um, because I want to make sure I get through all this. But let me just say this by way of application. I just want to mention one verse that I feel like I probably need to have tattooed on my forehead um, so I'll see it every morning. Um, it's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Um, Paul wrote this, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. 
You think about I mean, that's good news. That's great news. That he's really saying, this gospel self-image that I have, that I'm nothing but I'm something, it frees me from finding my worth and my value in what you think about me. But see, it's the next line in that verse that I need to hear regularly, and maybe some of you need to hear it too, because this is what Paul wrote. He said, in fact, I do not even judge myself. And listen, I'm going to give you my paraphrase of this. He's really saying, I don't care what you or anyone else thinks about me. And I don't even care what I think about me. Right? To embrace your broken reality and come to Jesus for your identity, that is to find freedom from even your own opinion of yourself. Because the only opinion that really matters about you is God's opinion. And if you have come to Jesus, he has filled you with his own glory. You are nothing, but you are something. He's in the business of making nothings into somethings. And that's beautiful. That sets you free from so many things. Okay, second, let's move on to talk about how the gospel shapes the way we relate to everyone. And here I'm in verses 7 through 10. I wish we had enough time to pull out everything here but uh, that Paul says about the sowing and the reaping to the flesh and the spirit. But let me just highlight a few things. It's very significant, I think, that Paul did not write the one who sows to the flesh. But instead he wrote the one who sows to his own flesh. Do you, do you know what happens when you live your life insecure that you matter or that you're significant or you're trying to prove that you're lovable and, and that you have glory, you become radically self-centered. Everything is about you. Will this or that make me feel significant or that I have value? Will this person or that person make me feel lovable? And it's not just that you act selfishly, but you become incredibly sensitive and defensive in your life. See, self-centeredness doesn't only get expressed in your life in harsh, brash, kind of self-important, pushy arrogance. It also gets expressed in radical insecurity and self-pity and neediness. We'll get really confused if throughout the sermon I keep highlighting all the paradoxes of the gospel, but I think this one is familiar enough that you won't get lost in it. Uh, Jesus said, that you have to lose your life if you ever want to find your life, right? And, and if you try to hold on to your life, Jesus says, you're going to lose your life. See, when we're living self-centered, we're sowing to our own flesh. We're trying to build an identity for ourselves. We're trying to build our own glory. But what does Paul say? When we sow to our own flesh, we reap corruption, the more you try to grasp for an identity for yourself, the less you have an identity. The harder you strive to become something, the less you are something. I mean, you know this in life. We all know this. The more needy someone is for love or friendship or to be noticed, the less you want to be friends with that person, the less you want to notice that person. The way to become less human is to sow to your own flesh. But Paul was also saying this. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. The way to find your life 
is to lose it. it. Paul is saying it's when you sacrificially live for others for the glory of Jesus. Because you have been set free of your neediness to grasp for your identity. That's when you find your life. That's when you find out what God made you to be and do. So Paul wrote, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. And in the very last verse, he said, whenever you have the opportunity, you should be doing good and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, especially good to your family, but also to everyone else, right? But not, not only doing good to your brothers and sisters in Christ, but to everyone. And when, whenever you have opportunity, Paul is saying, the way down is the way up. The path of sacrifice is the path of life, right? Only when you lose your life will you really find your life. Um, imagine holding an acorn in your hand. Um, I mean, it's so small, right? Um, it's tiny. It's vulnerable. You could drop it in the grass and lose it. Um, that's how small it is, right? You could step on it. You, and if you did, you would destroy it. That's how vulnerable it is. But if you put it in the ground to die, it grows into a massive tree, right? But don't just think of a tree <laughs> in that one tiny little vulnerable seed is everything necessary for covering the whole world in trees, right? It would take time. It would take many opportunities of many acorns falling into the ground and dying. But it has that kind of exponential power of life. I mean, to hold, to sow to your own flesh is to hold that acorn in your hand so tightly, right? So tightly that you would crush it and destroy it. But to sow to the Spirit, as Philip Ryken wrote, is to live for God's pleasure instead of your own. And what pleases Him? What causes Him delight? Living sacrificially for others. It's exactly what His Son did for you. Right? And it pleased the Father to crush His own Son for you, is what Isaiah wrote. He came little, He came small, He came vulnerable, He came killable. And he went into the ground and he died and he released exponential power into our lives. And it, it's not going to be different for you and me. The gospel frees us to sacrificially do good to everyone. Now, let me give you a little plug, build on an announcement that we had this morning. Grace Community Church is a young church. Uh, we're just four years old. Just We're not even four years old yet. Um, but we've said... From the very beginning of this church, uh, that we want to be the kind of church that does good to and for our community, right? We want to love this community with such sacrificial service and goodness that if we cease to exist tomorrow, this community would sorely miss us. One of the ways we're doing this is by serving the children and the staff and the teachers at Cordova Elementary School. And here's what I want to say about that. We're not serving them so that they will come and build our church. We are not serving them so that we can pat ourselves on the back and feel good about ourselves. We're serving them because the gospel has set us free to do good to everyone. We're serving them because we have an opportunity to do good there. Right? So here's what I plan on volunteering this next school year. To serve those children and those teachers at Cordova Elementary School. Be inconvenienced in your schedule sacrificially for the least of these. That's the way of death that leads to the way of life. 
We sign up to bring supplies, take money out of your budget, tell your kids we're going to eat at home tonight instead of going out to eat because we're going to give our money to kids who really need it. I mean, that's the way of death, which is the way of life. So to the Spirit, and consider the harvest. We will reap. That's something we can do corporately, right? But individually and personally, let me just ask you this as we close. Look, think about you and your spouse and your family. How can you do good to your neighbors living in your neighborhood? How can you do good to those in your workplace, right? In your kid's school or in your community? The gospel sets us free to follow our Savior, to go the way of death in order to reap life. Okay, two more points, and that probably makes some of you nervous, um, but these last two are going to be briefer uh, than the first two. So, um, here, here, and here's why. The final two points that I want to bring out, they're really highlighting even more specific groups within the everyone that we just mentioned. And the first of those is the suffering. How does the gospel shape and influence the way we relate to the suffering? Verse 2, Paul wrote, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Listen, life is hard. Better yet, life is really, really hard. And if you haven't felt that yet in your life... Let me encourage you to just give it a little bit of time because eventually it's going to be hard because this is a broken world, right? And the Paul and the Bible, they all assume that you are going to suffer, that we are going to suffer, that our family and our friends, there's going to be suffering and we cannot deal with it all alone. We can't bear it all alone. But why highlight this group of people? the suffering. I mean, if we're supposed to be doing good to everyone, right? I mean, we should be doing good to the wealthy and the comfortable and those who live in relative peace too. They're a part of the everyone, Uh, but they don't get highlighted. And here's my really uncomplicated answer to the question of why this group gets highlighted. Read your Bible, right? From the beginning to the end, even a cursory glance will show you this, right? It gives you a picture of a God who is uniquely on the side of the hunger, hungry, the poor, the hurting, the broken, the neglected, the sick, the weary, and the heavily burdened. God draws near the brokenhearted. A bruised reed he will not crush, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. He hears the cries of his people, and he enters into their trouble. He bears their burdens, right? Who were most of Jesus' friends when he walked this earth? They weren't the social elite. They weren't the wealthy. They weren't the religious. They were the prostitutes, the thieves, the drunkards, the lepers, the lame, the blind. They were the fringes of society. They were the outcasts. They were the heavily burdened in life. Listen, see, when you see that you are nothing and Jesus came and bore your burdens... He bore all your guilt, all your shame, all your righteousness that was his filthy rags. When you see that, he took all of that and he bore it to the cross. And he, all, he did that. He did it all to make you something. To lift you up and fill your life with glory and significance and love and value. I'm telling you, when you get that, that creates a unique love. It creates a unique concern and a unique compassion For the suffering. You are a child of the king. 
And your king is one who stoops into the dirt to wash his disciples' feet. I mean, that story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet in John chapter 13, it's an amazing story to me. Amazing. Washing feet. The job of the most menial servant in that culture. And to imagine that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is taking those nasty feet. Listen, I don't even wash my own feet. I I just get in... It's gross. I shouldn't have started down this path, but... Uh, you know, I just wash my hair and my body and I assume that the soap is going to trickle down and my feet will be clean. Um, this is nasty, right? I mean, and in the Middle East, I mean, hot, dusty, dirty, sweaty, oily feet that would walk through garbage and the excrement of animals in the street. It's disgusting. Their mess was getting on him, right? When he took those feet in his hands. And what does John say about that scene? This is, this is how he begins it. And now he showed them the full extent of his love. I mean, that was his love. That he moved towards the broken. That he moved towards the mess. The suffering and the hurting that he entered into that mess to redeem them. See, I don't want you to get a Hallmark card kind of feeling about this point. Burdens are burdens. And they're heavy. And they're hard. And they hurt. To bear one another's burdens means that you have to get incredibly close to people. Right? You have to come in and under that burden, right? In order to help them with it. And when you do, you take some of the weight on you. And the mess gets on you emotionally, physically, financially, psychologically. It happens. So hard and it's painful and it's wearying to do, but Jesus did it for you. And this is how we fulfill the law of Christ, Paul wrote, which he mentioned the law of Christ in chapter 5, verse 14. The whole law, he says, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you have a burden in your life, what kind of passion and urgency and desire and resources do you throw at that burden? You should do... You should. Approach your neighbor's burdens with the same passion, desire, and urgency and resources. Okay, listen, let's finish up with a fourth point relating to those caught in sin. How does the gospel shape the way we relate to those caught in sin? Um, And how does it influence confronting sin in one another? First, to be caught in sin, it really means someone who is trapped by sin. Uh, Paul is not thinking of an isolated sin in someone's life. He's He's thinking about someone entangled in a habitual way with some sin. And to be caught by sin means that in some ways this person is blinded to their sin. Right? They don't see what a big deal it is. Or they don't see the snare that they've stepped in and that is, is attached to their foot. See, if you're aware of your sin and you're mourning it and you're hating your sin, truly, you really aren't that caught right? Our deepest, most dangerous sins in our lives are those that we are most unaware of. But second, what about this? Paul says, you who are spiritual, restore him. I mean, for Paul, that doesn't mean, I know how we hear that, but for Paul, that doesn't mean those of you who are on some higher spiritual plane deal with this. What Paul is saying is anyone who has the Holy Spirit deal with this. That means anyone who is a Christian, 
is to care for the burdens and, and for the sins in his brothers' and sisters' lives. And then third, we're to be seeking that person's restoration, Paul says. You see, Paul isn't saying confront and condemn. He's saying confront to restore. Bring that person who is caught and unaware of sin or of its seriousness. Bring that person back to reality. To live against reality and out of accord with reality is always dangerous. I mean, there are physical laws in life like you can't breathe underwater and gravity is going to pull you down to the earth very hard and fast. And if you ignore or go against those laws... Is going to break you and it's going to be dangerous to your life, right? And, and listen, if you live against the spiritual reality and the relational reality that God has put into his world, it's no less dangerous. And the job is to restore. But fourth, Paul says, be gentle. The ministry to those caught in sin, it's not an either or ministry, right? It's a both and ministry. It's not truth or mercy, reality or grace, holiness or love. It's truth and mercy. Reality and grace, holiness and love. And then Paul wrote this. Keep watch of yourself lest you be tempted. And I don't think Paul was saying, if you approach someone caught in the sin of greed or anger or sexual sin, be careful because you might fall into greed or sexual sin or whatever that other one I mentioned was, anger. Um, I think he's saying it's going to be very, very easy for you And tempting for you, when you approach someone in their sin, to forget who you are. In other words, it's going to be tempting for you to think that you're better than that person. Or that you're not as sinful as that person. It's going to be tempting for you to feel superior to that person. See, do you know where that brings us? That brings us back to point number one, relating to yourself. Because listen, if you start by knowing you're nothing, do you realize how gentle that will make you with others in your life? You aren't any better. The sins you see in someone else's life, those sins, they're just lying dormant in your heart. All they need is the opportunity. All those seeds need are a little sunlight and a little water, and they'll blossom in your life too. And to know you're nothing is to know reality, is to help that person caught in sin really understand reality. But to know that you're not just nothing, you're something, well, that gives you confidence to move towards your brother and confront them. It it gives you real hope. If you know you're nothing but you're something, it gives you real hope to know the power of the gospel to restore. Because after all, it restored you and it restored me. And that means it can restore anyone. Right. Listen, we we have covered way too much material this morning. I'm aware of that. I almost broke this into like two sermons uh, this morning before you got here. But I'm really committed to finishing Galatians next week. So I threw a lot at you. But let me let me end with with this. Um, If you give me just two more minutes, um, tell a little story and then end. G. Campbell Morgan uh, was a preacher in England in late 1800s, early 1900s. And he told a story about visiting a cemetery in Italy. And in this cemetery, there was this old grave of an incredibly wealthy person. It had to be because it had this humongous, several feet thick marble slab that laid on top of this grave, right? But here's the thing. Somehow, 
an acorn fell into that grave, and it died, and a tree grew. And it grew, and it grew, and somehow that, that tree forced its way out the, one of the sides of this marble slab, and it grew, and it grew, and it got bigger and bigger, and over the years, and it took years, it cracked this huge, thick marble slab into two pieces, and it rolled it off the grave. Listen, there is only one thing that I am aware of that can bring about the kind of transformation that we're talking about this morning. A transformation of the way you see yourself, the way you relate to everyone and the suffering and those caught in sin. And that is to have the gospel worked down so deep in your heart. This news of a Savior who lived and died and was raised from the dead for you, to have that news work so deeply into your heart that you will find that it can crack even the hardness of your heart and roll that stone off of your heart and shape the way you relate to everyone, including yourself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Father, how I thank you that the good news of the gospel is for sinners, that it is for the broken like us. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is in the business of taking nothings and making them somethings in your Son. Father, we thank you for the hope of a gospel that doesn't just just deal with us individually, but that deals with all our relationships. And Father, we long to be a community and a people in which we can truly say that the gospel has gotten in and on everything in our lives. And it has changed everything about us. Father, we pray that you would bring about this transformation. Certainly for our good, we need that hope, we need that healing, we need that life. But most importantly, we pray that you would do this for your glory, for you are the God who takes nothings and makes them somethings in your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.